Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Our show is all about the paths we carve as we discover and enjoy media, and also the paths we make as we create it. For most of us, our contributions to the landscape are Facebook comments and Instagram posts. And for our guests, they may include an impressive body of professional excellence. This is certainly the case with our guest, four-time Emmy winner, Michael Learned. You know her as Olivia Walton, and you may have seen her recently as Jeffrey Dahmer's grandmother on Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Michael is right here with us in the studio. We're delighted. And also joining us today is Charity Buzz winner, Susie Maines. But first, before we get to all that fun stuff, Fritz has some news and reviews for us. Always the shame of self-promotion comes sure. at the top of the show. Yeah. Some really great news we received last week. We hit the Apple Podcast Charts in Canada in the books category. Yay. We love our Canadian listeners. Thank you so much for supporting us there in the land that gave us Wayne Gretzky, Lorne Michaels, William Shatner, and Pamela Anderson. And as Wheezy knows, I spent four years in Buffalo, New York. And uh, now I hope I don't make that Buffalo people mad, but that's okay. No, I think Canada has to take also credit for Celine Dion, Paul Anka, and Anne Murray. Yeah, Thank whatever. you, Canada. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, anyway, uh, so we would go to Toronto when we lived in Buffalo to get Chinese food. It was two hours away. <laughs> we would drive all the way up there to get Chinese food. They had really good Chinese but food. But the, the thing that really, and, and I live there, and Buffalo is, is my, you know, I met my former wife there. I, I have so many friends who are still there. But the thing about Buffalo is it, 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 it's, it, it's a rusted industrial city who has seen its greatest days in the past. Not where you live. Oh, no, no. It's, Buffalo don't is coming a, back, don't, baby. Don't do a chamber <laughs> of commerce. Nobody cares. Okay, now listen. So you're, you're over on this side, and there are a lot of smokers and, and depositors of beer cans out the windows of moving cars in Buffalo, and it's just different. You go across the Peace Bridge to Canada, and you can drive for miles and not find a cigarette butt deposited by a freeway, not a piece of trash. What I love about Canada, and please invite me to your home, <laughs> is that they are so aware of their environment and they're so proud of their country and take great care of it. And that's not just Buffalo. That's the whole United States, although not so much anymore. But it, uh, I was always very jealous of and envious of the great attitude, very protectionist quality these people had. I think that Canada is just ahead of the curve in terms of being good citizens of Earth. But Buffalo and the rest of the United States, we're, we're careful about littering now and we don't just... <laughs> All right. We have a few reviews that we want to share from Dan Pat 22. A great listen. Funny, informative, and entertaining. Would definitely recommend. And from DDEM2000. Not her real name. Awesome. One of my favorite podcasts. They know their stuff and are always well prepared. Look forward to more episodes. Thank you so much. How much did it cost us, Dina, to get these reviews? On? It's less okay. expensive in Canada. Okay. Go ahead. Um, Oh, so you want me to do my recommendation first, Fritz? Or are you going to do no, yours? No, that'll mess up the entire flow of the show. I better do mine. Yeah, do yours. I have a new documentary series because, you know, I'm all about the documentaries. This is on Hulu. It's called Stolen Youth, The Cult at Sarah Lawrence. This was dark and fascinating. Sarah Lawrence is an upscale college in Bronxville, New York. The story is an exploration of a cult that was born in student housing at Sarah Lawrence in 2010. And even though it started in 2010, it hasn't completely ended yet. Larry Ray is the father of a Sarah Lawrence student. And because of a couple of events that I won't give away, he moved into his daughter's student housing, which is weird. Mm -hmm. 
And the roommates thought it was weird as well. But after time, and this is the interesting part, the roommates started to trust, and then they began to rely on, and then they eventually worshipped Larry. He began spinning wild tales about the secret work that he did for the government, and some of it was true. Gradually, he became a sort of a a father confessor to these students in their teens and their early 20s with, you know, as yet unformed psyches. He would listen to their problems. He would offer advice. He'd slowly begin to set himself up as kind of a guru able to seek out the real source of all of their issues. And these kids, as any kids would be, were really vulnerable to the attention of this adult who was not their parent. Over time, the mind control and the manipulation began to metastasize. The kids began to be deathly afraid to disobey Larry because they'd be punished, even physically. Larry's manipulation was so complete that he lured a Columbia medical student into his lair. This girl was unable to clear her mind of his control, and even after he was sentenced to prison for 60 years for this crime, but so odd and scary. I was fascinated by the story because I have a daughter in college and realized that even smart kids from solid families are vulnerable to this mind control if you have a person with a dark genius for uncovering and playing on young people's vulnerabilities. I've always been fascinated, as we've talked about before, the cult psychology, but this was freaky. Well, my take on it is that the phenomenon illustrated here is sort of like a human being presenting as a drug. The first dose feels warm and wonderful, and the more deeply he is ingested, the more damage he is free to commit as the addict continues chasing that initial high. His techniques are all complete projections, or what I call truth throttling. He constantly accuses the kids of damaging things and lying, and he convinces them that they are being poisoned and poisoning each other when he is the ultimate poison. And, you know, and he knows that kids, I mean, all human beings are, if there's been enough damage in their childhood, could be susceptible potentially to cult psychology. But like, especially kids, you know, in those formative years where they're trying to create self and he's offering all the answers. It's just, it's so disturbing. But but, but the takeaway for me, the the most horrible part was that these are smart, some brilliant kids. You can't be dumb to get into Sarah Lawrence. And they're from wonderful, established, uh, uh, sane families. And and like the, the medical student from Columbia, her parents were these loving, and they were immigrants. Spanish immigrants, and they were loving and caring, and I thought, you just don't know. The other thing about the kids is that they're compelling, and they're just like, they're really cool people. And I think really, really sweet, dear people are vulnerable to to falling in under the sway of some sort of compelling person that's going to, you know, just magically you know, offer solutions to what they're struggling with. Yeah, it was good. It was really fascinating. Really well done. And and um, in the book that, like, for Immediate Path Overlap, in the book that I read by Jeffrey Berman when he was Southern District of New York, right. whatever that title, I can never remember the titles of all these people in law enforcement, but he brought that case. And the case wasn't actually brought, in, like, when the kids, some of the kids at Sarah Lawrence went to the feds and they were like, hey, uh, this is weird. Um, this kid moved into my friend's dorm and he's cool but he's 40 like they were you know the feds were like huh what and then someone graduated sarah lawrence and wrote and became a journalist and wrote about it and then in new york york magazine yeah and that's when law enforcement started looking into it 
Yeah. So my uh, pick for the week is Dear Edward, and I love taking the media path from book to movie or series. Each medium presents unique storytelling opportunities and limitations. And so I bring to the experience no expectation that the film or the series will be a visual representation of the book. And wide open arms are helpful when making your journey from book to series with Dear Edward. Anne Napolitano's novel tells the story of 12-year-old Edward, the lone survivor of a horrific plane crash which takes the lives of his parents and his brother. With his world ripped out of the sky, he is placed in the care of his aunt and uncle who had for years struggled unsuccessfully to conceive a child. The book toggles back and forth from the flight, introducing us to several fellow passengers, to Edward's new life in New Jersey. The writing is achingly beautiful, conveying Edward's harrowing inner struggle to not just survive, but to actually live. The series widens the lens, pulling in flight passengers and their grieving families and connecting their stories through a survival support group. This allows writers and producers to create interesting ripples, storylines, and interwoven grief and healing. The additional characters are mostly folks who do not appear in the book, including the wonderful Connie Britton. She plays a woman who learns uncomfortable truths about her husband who was on the flight. The performances are exquisite, Colin O'Brien is hauntingly heartbreaking as Edward. His Aunt Lacey is played beautifully by Taylor Schilling from Orange is the New Black, and Connie Britton has an edge to her here, and she is phenomenal. The overarching theme with this piece is that we do have the power to fill broken and empty places with hope and purpose and new life. Dear Edward, the book is by Anne Napolitano, and the series is on Apple Plus, with new episodes dropping weekly. Very nice. Sounds great. It is. Let's meet our philanthropist. Let's do that. <clears throat> so, Charity Buzz winner, Susie Maines is with us. And the Susie... one and only time I'm going to be called the philanthropist. And but Su I like it. Well, here's your introduction. Susie has worked with child actors as a talent rep. She's even appeared on Dr. Phil, Entertainment Tonight, and Sirius XM to talk about this work. She knows it intimately. And before the show, Susie and I were talking about how, uh, at, as a very young woman, when she first moved to L.A., she became associated with, or friends with, the family of Anissa... Jones. Jones from A Family Affair, whose lunchbox is directly beneath. Susie, talk about... Hang on a second. It's... Let's talk about Charity Buzz, because I think that... But, uh, just say, say how it works and how I wanted to talk about Family Affair, Fritz, but sure. Okay, no, you go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Charity Buzz, how does it work? Um. Well, how it works is that if you... You know, you go on there and you can either offer your services or you can look at a service that you would want to contribute to and it goes to a charity. So, for example, this one I was so excited for because, as I said, I'm sort of bowing down to Louise and now you. But um, so. because I just, you know, when I get excited about something, I just get so passionate about that thing and then it doesn't go away. And so I just am so excited to be on the panel well, you were the first person to people. donate three hundred thousand dollars to be on our oh, show oh yeah as well we think wow. i thought it should be more but you know <laughs> not um, the family affair so, i'm sorry yeah. <laughs> i just wanted to i wanted people to understand why she but came we, to but it's all it's you know this this show is kind of like one one of the through lines will be uh child actors because of course michael worked with a whole set full mm -hmm. of child actors my movie mm -hmm. family band the council story which you know as much as i do right which is about children performers that were maybe not cared for emotionally right. uh, as well as they needed to be. And when you talk about when you first moved to L.A. and you met Anissa and her brother Paul. Well, it was really a pivotal moment for me because I had wanted to be um, 
when I was a kid, I'm just going to give a little backstory. When I was a kid and I was around 10, some of the movies that I was watching and I all of a sudden put it together, those kids are working. And I started to do like a deep dive at that age. Like, how did that happen? How did they get to work? How are they making money? What's happening? And so I sort of pursued that kind of train of thought. And so um, it's always been sort of like I came in with it in a way. And I discovered my cousin when I was 10 and she was seven. She's going to be great. And she actually did a modeling job. So when I moved out, when I graduated from college in Switzerland, I moved to New York and then I worked as an agent. And then here we are in L.A. The first person I met, and I moved to play at Del Rey because two of my best friends lived there. And so the first person I met was a, a very handsome young man named Paul Jones. And he was absolutely, um, he, oh man, it's so funny is this is such an old story. But I don't, as I said to Louise, I don't talk about it very much, but he was such an old soul and such a beautiful person. And a journey ensued whereby I understood the life of a child star from a whole different perspective than I ever had before because of how Paul was impacted by it, how dearly he loved his sister and how drastically different he was treated. And um, then the mom and how her life, I, I, I cared about her very deeply too because about two years into my relationship with Paul, he passed away. And I was there on the scene, and um, right after it happened with the police and his mom. And that then opened up a whole new experience of the mom and coping with the grief. And I think it all ties together, oddly enough, into it maybe would have happened anyway, where they didn't feel as worthy or as loved or comfortable being themselves, which neither one of them did, mm. it maybe would have happened anyway. But I think it was pushed and accelerated by a business where at that time there were very few child stars. There were three networks. Mm -hmm. So every kid that was on that one of those networks blew up. And their responsibilities were greater. They had to go and do promos every weekend. And Nisa was never home. Paul was home by himself. You know, and there were things that don't happen today mm -hmm. to kid actors. There's too many of them. There aren't stars anymore. Right. I mean, forget it. They we're are not all looking. Actors. We're not all looking in the same direction. Correct. And unless they break out sure. for a project and become, you know, and then sort of take off, you know what I'm saying? But um, it, it gave me, um, it took my heart into it in a really big way. It still is important. And, and then I became friends with Kathy Garver, who played the older sister. And we became friends through a whole other thing of judging. We were judging a competition at one point, like back east. And we still are friends. Now, what you, now you went on to work, to represent children, child actors. I do now, yes. And so what that early experience informed this and so how it what have you learned about what 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 is essential if a child wants to make money it's the one interest that can be lucrative if they're playing little league they're not making right, money you're right but this is something that makes money that the whole mm -hmm. family uses or is a per, certain percentage is put away for the child and the rest of the family says well we needed this to drive her and and this and that so what do you look for do you look for parents who are healthy before you agree to represent the child? 
I do now, and I will jump in just a little bit, but what you said was, I have a little boy who starred in a very big movie with a very big movie star, and it was just him and this, and you guys would know the movie, but he called me recently, and we had lunch at uh, Vitello's, and he said, you know, gosh, I, I'm so surprised that, um, and this came up at the end, I'm so surprised that, you know, I just didn't make that much money when I got the money out of my Coogan, and I was like, um... Well, you did make a lot more money that was accessible to your parents. It's community property. So he was his little face because he looked just the same as the cutest. And his little face just dropped. And he said, what? And I said, look, don't judge your mom just yet because we don't, you know, I have no idea what's happening. But I sort of got a feeling of what might have happened. And I knew his mom really well. But um you know, so yes, I right now, the the flags are so clear to me, and every so often I let one get by, very. And and I the flag was always there, so I am totally, totally going to turn down representing a child if the parent isn't great. And I don't even care anymore. Like, I've passed that point because <laughs> I've been doing this a really long time. So I don't care if I'm turning down, a, you know, the greatest child star that's ever lived. Because that, in the long run, I know how it plays out. Mm-hmm. And um, If it's a bad stage parent scenario, you're, you're out. <laughs> yes. In mm-hmm. fact, I had one little girl who came to me once, and she was, her mother brought her by, let's catch up with Susie, see how everything is. And she walked in the room, and she broke down crying. And she said, I don't want to do this anymore. And my family moved me all the way from here, and, I, and they're not going to let me go and let me do this. And she said, you please tell my mom I'm not very good at it. <laughs> and, you know, I had the story, Louise, you know, that you just said. So I walked out, and I said, you know what? I think she's amazing, but I think she's at an odd age. And I'm going to pull back, and I think let's wait and bring her back. And so that's what happened. And I, I did that in, with a clear conscience. Well, that's, I, we want to hear. I think we should get to Michael. Do you have one more question for Susan? I just want to add, yeah. I, I wanted to tell her my child star experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know you were a child star. Uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. no, and I, I did not give birth to any I mean, I'm child sure stars, but I sure gifted. tried. Yeah. So I have two sons, and when they were young little towhead kids, mm-hmm. and before the, uh, the darkness of the world had settled That's on their correct. shoulders, I <laughs> took them out to auditions. Oh. And it was brutal. And, 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 <laughs> They would go sit in the hall somewhere for 90 minutes, and then they would go in the audition, and it wasn't that they weren't cute, and it wasn't that they had maybe potential talent, but as soon as they yawned during the audition, somehow that, that dampened down their opportunity mm-hmm. to work. So they, they, they hated the audition process, so we just stopped. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really... And I, I think we've, we've spoken to quite a few child stars on this podcast, yes. and I think the, real, the ones that have a healthy sort of self-image now that they're adults Mm -hmm. were ones that got into it because they insisted on doing the acting job and their parents said if this is what you want to do Mm -hmm. we will take you we're not going to force you into it Mm -hmm. that's correct bill mooney's a good example and there's also one big difference now that's happening with child stars that didn't happen then and that is that you can book a job from your living room now whereas you didn't you can't don't have to go in and Uh. have a casting director have a, a person out there watching the 
the parents, which they used to do. And you have to drive from San Diego and back to the callback the next day. And, you know, they're doing these taped auditions. Actors are doing that, too. They, you know, they record the sides in their home in front of Correct. And you can you can book it all the way through the Zoom callback to um, chemistry reads online. I don't know. I mean, it's it's crazy. Well, I got to tell you, Susie, it's been a pleasure to get thank to you. know you, and it's a you so pleasure much. to learn about your career, but we thank you for your donation, and and we liked you even before you got here because of the way you got here, which is awesome. Oh, uh, well, thank you so much. It's really my pleasure with looking Good. at the three of you here. It's my best how morning. How person? It's Are my you surprised best at how handsome I am? I was surprised at how handsome you were. Yeah. But I even more handsome than before. But I was also surprised at your height. Oh, because oh, I yeah. feel like you're a lot taller than I thought you would be. Fritz is Once a tall I was man. relieved of my NBC contract, I grew like a weed. <laughs> yeah, no. Continue success to Susie. you. Your heart is in the right place. It was nice to meet oh, you. Oh, thank you, Susie. So much. You're going to become our studio audience. All right. So oh, have yeah. a seat Stay right here. Oh, you did <laughs> really well. Really I think did you're going to get, get a callback. Uh, okay, here's Michael's intro. Michael Learned fell in love with acting at the age of 11 while attending a British boarding school. Her life-altering break came when she was appearing in a production of Noel Coward's Private Lives, where she was spotted by producer Lee Rich, who cast her as Olivia Walton in his heartwarming series about a Depression-era family, The Waltons. Michael earned three Emmys as Olivia Walton and yet another Emmy for her role in Nurse. Her most recent triumph is her portrayal of Jeffrey Dahmer's grandmother in Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Please welcome the extraordinary Michael Learned. And I want to start by asking you to tell us about your childhood, because it sounds sort of like a Kennedy childhood, privileged but maybe lonely. You were sent to boarding school at the age of 11. Well, um, I, I got very depressed when I was 11 mm. for some hormonal, I'm sure, sure. and I shook. And so we were living in Austria at the time. Uh, my father worked for the OSS, and which became the CIA. I didn't know any of this. So your dad was a spy. We just knew that we were moving to Austria, and um, it was wonderful. It's a beautiful country. And, and we went straight into the little local school with a teacher with a stick. Um, <sighs> yes, and he'd hit the girls under the on their shins under the bench, and the boys had to hold out their hands. Oh, and they my God, that's super creepy. Human resources prison if they did that yeah. today. <laughs> not, not today. No, you're right. Absolutely. So anyway, so we're living in Austria, and I was, for some reason, I cried all the time, and I shook. There was no reason for it. Well, maybe years later, thousands of dollars in therapy i figured out there might have been a few but um but anyway um the the local doctor said she's in a tiny village here with with friends who are not interested in the things she's interested in so they suggested that i go off to a ballet school and um i got rejected from the settlers wells (laughs) they said uh, you're you're too tall and you have flat feet and you're not really a very good dancer. And your shins so. <laughs> are all cut up. Why is that? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so anyway, they the, so off I went to boarding school where I, I just sat and cried all the time. That's oh, all I God. did. I just and the teacher said, "Could you cry a bit more quietly, please?" <laughs> 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 So, um, and it was wonderful. And I won um, by accident. I won the school drama cup, which and the teacher said, "You know." You're not a very good dancer. Perhaps you ought to think about acting. <laughs> so I did. And um, and it was wonderful training. I mean, fabulous training. And so we had a dance class in the morning, 
and an acting class in the afternoon, and then we had schoolwork. And that lit the fire. Kind of, yeah. So was it something I seemed to be good at? Yeah, was it clear? Did other did teachers and other kids notice? Oh, geez, this is. I mean, I can just see the way you like immediately launch into a dialect that you're just kind not of not very good anymore oh, no, that's really good been that very impressive. <laughs> but, but did, yeah but people must have noticed that you were you were quite good well i had there was one teacher called uh, grace matchett was her name and she terrified me and most of the kids she looked like she never took a bath she wore these long dresses dark dresses and she had this dark lipstick that was sort of slashed across her mouth and um and she scared us all, but she came up to me once and, and said, you're very talented, and walked away. And, and that made me feel like a queen. You know? It probably meant more coming from her. From yeah. Her. yeah. She, yeah. she was actually a very good teacher, but she scared us all. You know, Absolutely. They all did. I love the story of your name. Even you didn't know why your parents named you Michael, so tell that story. <laughs> I asked my father, I said, why did you name me Michael? Um, and he said, well, had you been a boy, we were going to name you Caleb. <laughs> but as you were a girl, we decided to name you it Michael. It makes zero sense. No, if, if he had said, had so you, you wonder been a boy, why I'm neurotic. we would have named you Barbara. We'd go, oh, all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's it. But you know, you—I I think he—he he knew that you—you could pull—you could pull it off. You could carry it. You know that you would it's have this stature. Name. I hated it when I was a kid. I, I just hated it. Yeah. And, um, Did you have any nicknames? I had a little initial ring that had a B on it. My, for my father's name was Bruce, and it was his child initial ring. And so I would say, "My name is Betty." Well, I don't know if it was one of your early off-Broadway things or if it was the Waltons, but on the credits they put Miss Michael Learned so nobody would think it was a man. That's the Waltons because there was a shot of me with Cammie, the the youngest, and um, they didn't know who I was. Nobody knew who I was. So they said, with Michael Learned, we better put a miss in front of it so they know it's not a mistake. Yeah. And then I think they did away with it. I hope they did. Yeah, they did after Because people thought people I was being you. very pretentious. <laughs> oh, <laughs> she, she needs to be called Miss. Uh, so on average, how many times per week does someone say goodnight, John Boy, or a sentiment within that vein? They still say it. I bet they yeah, do. And I don't mind. I like it. Uh, in fact, I was in a, an Al-Anon, which is... Well, you probably know what Alan on is. I don't have to explain it. But it was a, a five-day, um, you stayed at this house, and, and you, you had meetings, Alan on meetings. Um, and um, I, one night, we, we were all going to bed, and I heard all these people saying, good night, so-and-so, good night, so-and-so, good night, Alice, good night. And, and I got up and said, Good night, everybody. <laughs> so, it was sweet. It was really Aww. nice. Yeah, I mean that is one. It, it's nice when you create something that just enters our consciousness as as a, as a warmth and a and an expression of love. That's uh, just quite. I agree, quite and that was Earl Hamner. That's what he did. Yeah, and he said it was it was true from his childhood. I want to talk about Alamon, and I want to talk about your recovery. And I come at it from a place of being in recovery myself for 40 years. Good, My 45 for me. Was, I'm uh, older than you. Good for you. <laughs> was uh, March of 1984 was my last thing. So I just appreciated your story because the, in this Shakespearean fashion, you were at the low point of your life. You were in the throes of your addiction. 
and you also were in the throes of a divorce when the Waltons was presented to you, and that became a lifeline that literally saved your life, the structure of it, the money, the ability to have a life beyond that. I'm thinking of writing, I mean, I've been sort of jotting down essays and things, little essays and things when I when I get in the mood, because I'm never in the mood. Nobody <laughs> likes to sit down and start writing. But um, yeah, I kind of bopped down from uh, San Francisco in my little VW bug and stayed at a motel for 12 bucks a night and um, showed up for the audition. If you show up, People say, how did you do it? I said, I didn't. I showed up. That's all I did. I showed up. And um, who knew? I remember when the phone call came and my agent said, I was stark naked. I'd been in the shower. I had a towel wrapped around me. And and I answered the phone and my agent said, congratulations, you are now the mother of America. (laughs) That's pretty accurate. It It was very nice. Describe Olivia. Describe who she was as the matron of the family. She was, I had to fight her on this sometimes because he idealized his mom, of course. And I, I, I had to say, you got to give her some faults. Otherwise, everybody's going to hate her. Um, and um, she was strong. She was judgmental, righteous, a little righteous, which I liked because uh, it made her human. And, um, and she loved her kids. And that was easy to play because I loved mine. So that part, that part was easy. Um, and and her, I, I met Earl's mom. She she had a wry sense of humor, red hair, and um, very quiet, very quiet. Now, in the initial episodes, you had red hair, correct? I did. Mm-hmm. They were just kind of we, then I got a little bit of power, and <laughs> I said, "I'm going to wear my hair the way I want to wear." But were, were they were Earl's siblings all gingers? I think a lot of them were, and Earl was right, yeah, right, yeah. right. So then they just decided to, everybody who had naturally blondish hair could just kind of relax. Well, they, I guess they figured Olivia did go to the hairdresser and had her oh. hair changed. I, I didn't know the mountain had but a hairdresser. A lot of the kids, the kids that played the family, mm-hmm. they, a lot of them, Cammie Cotler has natural, beautiful Auburn hair, and Eric Scott, who played Ben, whose wedding, we just we just went to his wedding, his daughter's wedding. Right. And... um we're very close, all of us. We're, we're, we're extremely close as a second family. Yeah. Have, have you had like Walton's Zoom get-togethers during the pandemic? No. Hmm. I don't know how to do Zoom. Oh, all right. That's why <laughs> Somebody you're Somebody sends me a link, I'll click on it, but otherwise... Other than that. <laughs> so I, I think shows like The Waltons and Little House on the Prairie and those ones that remind people that all that matters is family, the closest... Came at a time when we really needed to be reminded about what was important in life. I mean, we had, you know, the anti-war movement. It was the 60s. Everybody was trying to figure out how they felt about their government and about one another and about themselves. And I think those were very centering shows because they just proved that no matter what happens, you had the overlying arch of the depression. If we can survive that, we can survive anything. I think we could use shows like that right now. Do you? Yeah. Yes. How would they do it? Though? I don't know With how they do it. Maybe people are so cynical. Stuff. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. Maybe, maybe true. And maybe we're so cynical now that we wouldn't be bamboozled by the, by the attitude. But I, I, I think it would serve a purpose. Well, I think Earl was a good storyteller, and he told stories, and um, and a lot of them were based on his own experiences. Um, but I don't know how you would do it. I think they tried to do it in a show called um, 
I can't remember, but it was a show that was sort of modern. Eight is enough. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to do that. And um, it went over pretty well, Eight is Enough. But I don't know how you would do it now because families aren't the same. Mm -hmm. The nuclear family is over. So how reliable and or unsafe was John's truck? (laughs) (laughs) I used to have to drive that thing. Yeah. Um, It was okay. I I grew up learning uh, with a gear shift. I had to learn with a clutch and everything. So it wasn't hard for me. It was kind of fun. So it was fun. Yeah, it was kind of fun. It wasn't scary. I think it was a 1929 Ford pickup. I don't even know what it was. (laughs) Probably somebody's job was to keep that thing running. But yeah, and he did somehow. I don't know how he did. So you had all these uh, cast members and then and a lot of them were minors. So they come with additional people on the set. Mm -hmm. And how was the mix? Did was it did everything feel kind of comfortable to you or were there some tensions? Were you in our bedroom last night? We were were just talking about the mothers. I thought I got to write about the mothers of those kids who who would sit there and knit and crochet and talk or write or whatever they were doing. They all had some kind of a task, and they were there, and they were so comforting, the mothers. There they were over there sitting under a tree or whatever. And um, it's so weird. We were just talking about it last night. The mothers around, there won't be chaos on the set. Mothers will Well, somehow. And the kids were pretty good. They were very professional and very sweet. Oh, God. I love them all, you know. I'm and a testimonial to the to the staying power of that show was you had reboots and you had movies of the week and it went on into the 90s. Did it? Yeah, I think that, so, that right? Long? Am I right? Let me go to my statistician. When did I leave? It's still on the air. <clears throat> no, I'm talking about the... You know, oh, the I, don't, the I, I don't remember oh, okay. all the details of, of that, but I know I that so. there's been many reunions and that, and you're telling us you guys have stayed close? Oh, very, yeah. Well, we spent more time together than with than we did with our own families, really. Right. Yeah. Right. My kids would all be standing at the door when I got home with their problems. You know, uh. Mom, I need this. I need drumsticks. I need blah 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 blah. And I'd, I'd say, one night I had to say, I'm on strike. I, you're on your own. You got to fix your own dinner. I, I put the groceries down on the thing, and that that's that. And I sat there and my. Youngest since after a long silence said, "Can we say good morning?" Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, did you watch the series each week when it first aired, or do you, in your memory, is it all these just fragmented individual scenes that you shot? It's both, but we did watch it. I watched it with Luke, my youngest. We would sit and watch it, and I remember I was cooking dinner one night and. Uh, the show came on, and Luke yelled, Mom, when that music comes on, it makes me feel so happy. Oh, I love Luke. That's sweet. That's adorable. Do right. they get the disconnect between real mom and TV mom, or why don't you treat us like you treat the kids on TV or anything like that? I don't think there was any jealousy. I don't, I don't think. You know, that's a good question. I never really thought about it, but... Um, I think the kids didn't like me working those hours, you know, because sometimes. But I had a beloved woman named Mrs. Blair who was like my mother, a mother to me and a grandmother to the kids. Mm. She, she saved us from burning up because I fell asleep once with a cigarette in my hand. Okay. I did smoke. That's dangerous, yeah. She somehow figured it out and came 
put it out. God and bless she her. Was just, yeah, she was a blessing. Are you ready to play Walton's Trivia? It's okay if you don't know the She'll answers. She'll embarrass you because she knows everything. No, I don't know anything. This is the internet that knows oh, okay. things. For she's got great eyes. This is just sure. simply me Googling. All right. The show premiered in 1972 and was not expected to do well because of going up against uh, which two very successful shows? I can't think of his name. Um, I know. Flip Wilson. Thank Flip you, Wilson. John. That's My husband right. just went flip. You guys would flip Wilson. That would have been an illegal maneuver on password, but good for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll cut him slack because he's a Vietnam what the, uh, what the other <laughs> one is, I have no idea. Uh, the Mod Squad. Oh, the, really? Yeah. The Mod Squad, yeah. And That's you kind right. of like drove the Mod Squad to an early death. <laughs> and Flip Wilson. And Flip, well, you know, he he's fine. He'll be fine. But yeah, Flip, those were two very popular shows. And, and all of a sudden, ki and kids were watching Flip Wilson. Kids were watching the Mod Squad. And all of a sudden, everybody, want, I know in my family, we watched the Waltons. Really? That so there was an easy choice good. over the other two for us. It's so funny because we never thought it would run for, we didn't think it would run for even half a season. We thought they'd take it off the air. We thought, nobody's going to buy this. Nobody's going to buy this show. And I thought it would look nice on my resume. And um, lo and behold. And you'd get some nice gingham out of it. It was a, <laughs> yeah, I get to, I get yeah. to keep the aprons. Sure. Yeah. Okay, number two. In the first episode of the series, when the family gathers around a new radio, what show are they listening to? I have no idea. They're listening to Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Oh, that's right. And it was a oh, nod to yeah. Edgar Bergen, who had played Grandpa in the movie with the Patricia Neal. The original yeah. Homecoming with Patricia Neal. Right. Yeah. And, all right, so number three. So that's a fun one. Number three, what is the name of the dance hall where Jason played piano? I can't remember. It's the greatest name for an inn ever. The Dew Drop Inn. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> D-E-W. Right, for sure. We love wordplay. What well-known film had a newsroom set in a studio on your lot that the kids on your show would visit in 1975? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> All the President's Men. Oh. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Number five, what color was Olivia's hair in the first few episodes? We've that. Yes, we have, but it's on my... Well, it was red yes. until I, until we knew the show was a hit, and I got to say, I, I want my natural color, which yeah. wasn't my natural color, but because my own hair was kind of red, actually, kind of oh. honey-colored, and but I had streaks in it, so it made me... You've never stopped working. I mean, you've done... Between TV things, you've done off-Broadway yeah. and Broadway, and then you did this series that was, even with its dark subject matter, has been, you know, awarded the, the Dahmer series, um, and uh, you played Jeffrey Dahmer's grandmother. That was a real, it was hard to watch, but it was really interesting. So, what was your takeaway from that experience? Do you have a... An opinion about Jeffrey Dahmer or his environment or anything? He was a monster for sure. Yes, he was. I, I had to. I tried to do research on her, but there was very little about her. Just a few home movies, and but he. I listened to him, and he. he it was so interesting to me that it was almost like he was trying to figure it out himself. Like yeah. I, he said at one point, there must be something wrong with my yeah. brain. Yeah. It was like he was. He the was, takeaway from the whole thing for me was even in the first episode, he knew that there was something wrong with him. He tried to convince his dad, dad, there's something wrong with me. 
and his father didn't listen to him. And I thought that whole thing could have been avoided if he had a father that had a brain and would have, you know. Well, how can you, I mean, I th- I, I won't tell you some of the things I heard my kids say when they were little, yeah. when yeah. they were angry about something. Yeah. You know, they want to get a machine gun. And, blah, 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 blah. and I wouldn't, uh, I would never have, I didn't take it seriously. That was just a heartbreaking part in that first episode when, he said, I, I, I think I'm, so there's something wrong with me, Dad. And it was so, and his dad had his new girlfriend there. And, oh, yeah. and it was, it, it, it just, it broke my heart. I thought, wow, he it could have headed the whole thing off the bat. You know, a lot, of, a lot of kids go through a divorce. Their parents get divorced mm-hmm. and, and they don't turn out to be serial killers. So no, what, what happens? Mm-hmm. What happens? And it must be something in the it's brain or something. Glitch. Well, we're, you know, we're forever studying what, what goes wrong after it goes wrong. Uh, you know, hopefully we're also kind of anticipating what we could do to address the early warning signs of, because we know that there are anomalies in human character that cause people to become like complete sociopaths or psychopaths. We know that that exists throughout human history. You know, we hear about Jack the Ripper and, you know, throughout recorded history, the, this this happens when we see these mass shootings. We're, you know, it's on the news 24-7 because we can't imagine what would compel someone to be that angry and that violent and that destructive and with with no regard since all we do i mean as human beings we will erect a village in a backyard to get a baby out of a well that's what most of us will do yeah and then one in a in a million will do that and we're just forever studying what is it that causes humans to behave in ways that are just against I think whatever. he was right. I think it probably was some malfunction in the brain. That's and I'm, I'm going to criticize what I said earlier. We're much more aware <clears throat> in uh, identifying red flags with kids with psychological problems as we've gone by and seen these mass shootings in schools and everything. And so if that father were a father now, he might he might have a sense that there are things we can do to get this you get therapy for your kids yeah yeah right you know okay my kid is angry i'm gonna get there right i mean i guess the the, you know i'm sure i didn't watch because i can't i you know i can't watch i can't watch him so i apologize but i know (laughs) that the some of the warning signs are violence against an animal cruelty you know specific cruelty is different than your child raging and with a baseball bat running around the house uh like I'm going to get you. That's just normal anger and you know frustration of being a child. But if you see the child deliberately watching something suffer or causing something to suffer, mm-hmm. then that I I would think that would be a warning sign. This guy not only killed people, these boys, but he fried their liver in butter and ate them. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's not. Talk about sickness. And another interesting moment in that thing was when he was in with a therapist. I, I think like the court-appointed therapist when he had been stopped. And the doctor said, there's a name for that where you you uh, romanticize people's organs and want to devour them and everything. And he's talking about how that's a completely male trait. And I thought, wow, I mean, there are really, there are like uh, templates for figuring out this stuff. It was so interesting. It's it's very sad and very sick. Oh my God. So what, totally. what role does his grandmother play in his life? I think not a big one. They they gave me a nice juicy role. Mm-hmm. Usually wonderful. when they they write generic old ladies, you know, but they gave me some meat, pardon me, 
meat to chew on. I mean, they did. They gave me some stuff to play, and it was really nice. Um, she wasn't just a generic grandma. No. She had some character. And you empathize with her. You know, she's seeing her grandson go south, and what do you do? You, you want to do transform him by taking him to church, and you didn't want to go to church? I, I thought your part was very touching. and I thought it was beautifully written. Yes, yeah. it was. I was it very, really was. very grateful, yeah. Yeah. They write for women in England. They write for act, older actresses in England. They write whimsical and eccentric parts, but right. not so much in this country. You're right, Maggie Smith. Yeah, and Judy gets, Dench. And Judy mm-hmm. Dench. And Helen Mirren can't stop. She's in everything. Oh, please. I'm so <laughs> jealous. <laughs> well, you're more beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. She's a nice woman, and she's so, a good actress. What can we look for next from you? What have you been working on? Nothing. Ah, okay. Michael is available if you are out there. No, I, I um, when I'm not working, I, I'm a housewife like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And um, I will be working, you know, I've got a play that I'm reading for a theater in Canada. I love working in Canada. I grew um, my youngest son was Born in Toronto, actually. We lived in Toronto for a long time. Oh, yeah, it was wonderful. It was before it became Toronto. Before there's, the, According to Fritz, there's no litter. So. There's no litter in there. Uh, yeah. And the it best is, Chinese food in the North American <laughs> continent. I don't know about the Chinese food. Yeah, we drive yeah, two hours for Chinese food. They're very um, considerate people, the Canadians, yeah. You had an interesting dual role because you've done many soap opera appearances where you played a judge oh, yeah. on All My Children and One Life to Live. It was the same judge. How did that work? I don't even remember. <laughs> I remember the one judge, and I don't know which one it was, and I had to have the script there. I what I read not, was there were, I don't o- know how those people do it. there were overlapping storylines in the two soaps is what I had well, read. Well, I had... One soap, I played a woman who was dying of cancer, but she was a great, fun character. But she wasn't a judge. I don't think she was. Maybe she was, and I forgot. But anyway, those people have my deepest respect. They learn pages of dialogue. Pages every night. 15, 20 pages of dialogue. Crazy. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you have a, a role that you're especially proud of that maybe folks could? could find because everything is so readily available to us right now i'm sure i do but i can't think of it right now. should we ask your can't lovely husband the one written by arthur miller oh but oh. that's theater I'm... No, no, no. it's probably online what is it oh yeah what arthur miller it? which play red i'm trying to think of it it's, it was the one where the husband was Messing around with airplane parts to make money and planes. Oh, all my, all my sons. My sons. Yeah. She did that. I That's right on Casey uh, too. Yeah. yeah, I am proud of that. <laughs> I am proud of that. All right, so can we find that online, Mason? Yeah, I'm sure. You all can. my oh look, he's got all my and sons. And he was uh, an amazing guy. He walked in and your, your heart stops because oh he's so goodness. attractive. Oh yeah. He just sat down and said, "How can I be of help?" Oh my. Those were his first words. How can I be of help? I thought, wow. Nice what guy. a gracious thing to yeah, say. That's exactly how I feel. Now, he, he might be the Put most... Put us all at ease, too. He might be the most esteemed American playwright. Yeah, Miller, right? I think so. If, and if, Edward Albee, don't lose oh, yes, sight no, of absolutely. it. I got to work with him, and I fell in love with Edward. Oh. He's, he reminded me of my father, but he wasn't my father, so I had no baggage. And <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We got that. along great. Wait, so you, have, you still have baggage with your father? 
Well, doesn't Everybody. most people? <laughs> but he was a spy. Yeah, a Your dad bit. was a spy. Uh, my so, father was great. I loved him dearly, but he sometimes could be a little bit of a stick. <laughs> I think when you go into that line of work where a lot of what you're doing is top secret, because what I had read was that he was a diplomat, but now you're telling me that uh, he he may have been a spy. You're, I'm sorry, who you, was, was... Your was, dad? Uh, Wikipedia says that your dad was a diplomat, but you're well, saying... yeah, I couldn't talk about it when he was alive. Sure. So, so. I, he had to compartmentalize, you oh, know... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that... But he didn't have any trouble lying... Oh, I, wow. I once asked him, I said, well, uh, I said, this guy used to come to the house in Austria, a, a, a local, I mean an Austrian man, and I, could, I couldn't stand him. He, he, he would jiggle money in his pockets, and he, there was something about him that just made me nervous. And I remember years later saying to my father, you know, remember Harry Edel? I didn't like him, and my father said, I know, we, we were going to kill him. <laughs> Oh my goodness! That was my reaction. I'm, you know, like twenty and a marching and 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 I said, "Well, how are you going to kill him?" And my father went, "Wow, wow, that was that was a that's it, man." So you know, it was weird because I loved my father, but I didn't like what he was doing. Apparently, he was very strict. Yeah. Well, how did your mother? Was. <laughs> you know, because men like that. I'm my hands here. Because <laughs> men like that can be super attractive. He was. And he then was handsome. And and mysterious and dashing mm-hmm. and all all these things that women are drawn to. And so, how did your mother deal with that relationship when so much of his life he had to do independently of you guys? Oh, uh, okay. And she slept. Uh, we were talking about that too. Are you sure you? We're mm-hmm. lurking in the bedroom somewhere. I promise you. We're talking about that too. She, my mother slept with a pistol under her pillow in Nicaragua. Wow! Mm-hmm. And um, she was more frightened of spiders than she was of people. But um, yeah, she slept with a pistol under her pillow. Really? Yeah. So she knew he was up to something. Oh, she knew what he was doing. Okay. She's the one that told me. She said, and honestly, I'm 12 years old, and she said, sit down, Michael, okay? I used to take her her breakfast in bed in the morning. And she, uh, she said, if you ever tell anybody this, your, your father will die. So that got my attention. God, that's a <laughs> and, and then she said, uh, told me what he was doing, that he worked for the CIA. By then it had become the CIA mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And um, I never told a soul. And I... I couldn't keep secrets up to that point. I always told everybody everything, but that secret I kept. You know. Did your parents celebrate your show business success? Were they around long enough to do that? Yeah, they were kind of proud, I think, but um, they weren't impressed. Because they probably had met presidents and kings and dignitaries of all. Well, yeah, the king of Siam, my father had met. He had a silver tray service that the king of Siam had given him so yeah he had met a few people and he was there in the belgian congo when they were shooting remember that massacre that horrible massacre where they dug a big ditch and shot shot all these poor souls and they fell into the ditch he was there for that so you you just mentioned (laughs) that you guys were in nicaragua at one point i never was i was married by then Okay, so you were in vienna my family was yeah and then and you did you finish growing up in 
at the boarding school in England and then moved back to America? Did you go to college? I did, I did not finish um, my schooling. I dropped out. We came back to the States and lived in uh, Georgetown, across from Bobby Kennedy, actually, literally. You guys were fancy. And, mm-hmm. well, I think he was spying on them. <laughs> now I think that. I didn't oh, at the funny. time, but so I think now I'm father. looking back and I'm thinking, isn't that interesting? And my father went to school with John Kennedy to um, Georgetown Un- University. Was he a double agent? Yeah, I'm wondering. Yeah. But that's only a recent short drive that I've to thought work about it. Though, if you live right across from <laughs> I know. Ethel used to come over and talk, and I'm thinking. Wow. My parents were interesting people. You don't have to do it yourself. Just get somebody and spill your guts and let them write it for you. Right, but also we have to do a little bit more investigating. I don't think we have all the answers, Fritz. Okay, well, to I'm afraid fan. now because I don't want to get bumped off. I'll have to have a, p- a p- pistol <laughs> under my pillow. <laughs> I think we're okay. We're okay. Yeah. Well, we want to just thank you so much for coming over, and we've just had such a blast. Is there anything we've left out that you wanted to mention? No, I'm just, you know, I'm old now, and I, I don't mind it. It's quite nice, actually. I'm Your acting in the Dahmer guy. story was so touching, so beautiful. Thank I you. Thought, wow, you Thank really you have that. just, you're, you have not allowed your chops to uh, become dull. Really Thank beautiful. Thank you. It was, it was a challenge. The accent was a challenge for me. Yeah, the Chicago yeah. accent. So I was, and the kid was wonderful, I thought, oh, too. Oh, and a doll to work yeah. with. Yeah, and of the he had the Chicago kids. accent, too. He, he really... Yeah, he did. Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> he 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 is the nicest guy. I think he he played um um can't think of his name that another serial killer. He plays serial killers a lot, wow. which I think means he oh, there it is. I think it means he gets his dark side out and gets paid for it and in life he's just <laughs> right. a real nice guy. <laughs> Cathartic for him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was excellent. The person I had the most empathy for, first I had empathy for you, but then I had empathy for his next-door neighbor who kept Can smelling what imagine? was going on in the Can apartment. Can you imagine that? Oh my I'm God, wondering that if, awesome. she, if it was because she was African-American that they didn't pay attention to her. That's a very interesting you know, point. I, it's never explained in no. the series, wow. but I wonder. Do you have a favorite episode of the Waltons, because you can you can find them all now. They're on Amazon Prime. You can just every night you can watch an episode of the Somewhere Waltons and go to are. go to go to bed with a smile on your face. Do you do you have? And I'm sure I saw all of them as a kid. Do you have a, a favorite episode? I do. The anniversary. Uh, Ralph and I never slept together. Too bad. On TV or in real life? We were very close. I think we we loved each other. In in real life? We got to show how much we really loved each other. Yeah. So you're saying in real life you never slept together? No, in real life. I think that makes the relationship warmer and less complicated. We were spiritual lovers, you know? Right. And um, and we fought. I mean, we got, I, I remember we got into a fight once and. I knocked on his trailer because they called us on the set. I said, we have to make up because I can't play the scene if I'm still mad at you. And he just held out his arms. Sweet. He was adorable. After you're there a while and you've, you've, this character has become so ingrained in your soul, are you able to make suggestions to the writers and say, you know, I don't think Olivia would say that. And how, how do they absorb that when you went through them? They hated us. I mean, we were always, I would turn down, I would, oh, I should never say that, which is stupid because 
in life, characters act out of character. But we got so grandiose uh, after a while that we thought we knew everything. And the, well, the you, writers were good sports, really. Wow. I were. think you thought you knew your character. She was yeah. yours. Yeah. You thought you knew her. Thank you. So was it just you and sweet. Ralph that would do that? Yeah. And yeah. I understand that that it's it's like a family member, this person you're portraying. It's like <clears> you have to take care of her. In a way, yeah. So you're right. Thank so you. would Richard Thomas do that too or just? Absolutely. But what about the kids? Would would they do no, that? No, the kids were not allowed to say anything. <laughs> Did you see Richard in To Kill a Mockingbird? Oh, he was wonderful. It was, I saw it twice. I really yeah. love that He's twist. a good actor, and he's a yeah. great actor in anything he's ever done. And he was that calm, southern sensibility, just like, you know. Uh, and uh, and I love the new treatment of that whole story, because I think the courtroom was the most dramatic part of that whole story, so it was great. And I thought he was terrific. Yeah, he's he was always wonderful. good in, on stage. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I I just noticed is that, you know, he, he mentioned that when he was playing John Boy, it was maybe the first character of, of a young kid who read, who quoted authors, and, you know, who was like, sensitive and intrigued by the world and now almost with any coming of age story unless the person reads there's not a movie about them <laughs> like like it's almost well, like interesting every interesting young person has to is someone that reads the the pathway to knowledge and curiosity is books i'm so grateful we didn't have television when i was a kid um it wasn't. My father said, "If a television comes in the front door, I'm going out the back." And oh, really? Of course. Eventually, we did get one. He was guess more afraid of a television than of like you know a rival spy or an assassin. That's probably that's interesting. <laughs> uh, so, did, were you a, were you a big reader as a kid? Yes, absolutely. No, yeah, no I mean, TV. We had radio. We were allowed, but we, I was only allowed to watch listen to certain shows. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And uh, I used to read, you know, with the flashlight after my, I was supposed to go to sleep. I loved reading. I still do. Yeah, same. To read. Same. Yeah. All right, we're going to read. I'm going to read our closing credits. Let me re read a public service announcement. Oh, yeah, sure. sure. This sure. is a really good one. Mm -hmm. I'd like to uh, invite you to investigate the good work being done by New Directions for Youth. This is an organization that takes care of at-risk kids and their families in the North San Fernando Valley. They have programs like juvenile re-entry if they've come out of incarceration and need to be re-centered, getting back into life. They have counseling services that provide recovery into a productive life. They have an after-school program that provides a safe space for homework and play. And they fill the gap in food insecurity, which to me is, in the, in the richest country in the world, is a hideous problem where some kids only get a meal when they go to school. They get breakfast, and this gives them the second meal of the day when they come home. It's awful. They help 3,000 at-risk kids and their families every year. They're having a fashion show on a Sunday brunch at Macy's Topanga Canyon on Sunday, May 7th, 9 to 11. If you would like more information to help them or to show up at a fun fashion show, ndfy.org. That's ndfy.org. Thank you. You had me at brunch. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media.
You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. And we want to thank our wonderful guests, Michael Learned and Susie Maines. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. So easy. You think? Just really interesting.